I've missed this so much. I mean, it still seems pretty new for me to be back in fellowship and to worship together. Uh, and you know, I have good, rich fellowship with the Lord. I'm not complaining. He's good to me. And the time that I have with him alone is precious and intimate. But it is different when we're here as a body and all of our hearts are joined together and heaven is coming down and heaven is going up. Man, I almost couldn't hold my, no big daddy. No, I see him shaking his head. He probably watched my mouth start. I couldn't handle it, but it wasn't. It was just because it was so good. It's so good. It feels like, like an oasis when you've been crawling through the desert. You know, it's like that sunrise after the darkest night of your soul. That's what Jesus' presence is. You can go ahead and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, Maddie will want to know the answer to this later, so I'll tell him now. It is the purpose of the church is the title of this message. We're going to start in Ephesians chapter 5. And I'm going to have to hold myself together. Or maybe I won't. Let the Lord do whatever he wants to do. This is one of my favorite chapters. And I think first and foremost, the thing for us to understand what the church is, before it's anything else, the church is the bride of Christ. It's the body of Christ. There is no higher thing that could be imagined than what is actually true. I don't know how to convey this. You'll have to let the Holy Spirit do in your own heart. What does it mean that the Lord, the King of glory, that beautiful one that we see in Scripture and that we felt so poignantly today, as he was elevated on the cross and painted before us, that was that humble, that humbled himself to death, that is that loving that suffered that much to make us whole? Is that generous that would give everything and become nothing so that, so that he could have us for all eternity? So that he could share our heart? That's how much he longs for our hearts. So that he could know our thoughts. So that we could walk together as one. It's too wonderful. Look, you could not... It would be the height of hubris to make a choice like that for yourself. We could never. You could imagine asking a little kid, well, what would you like to be when you grow up? Well, I would like to be at one with the God of the universe. But that's what he's chosen for us, as we heard today. He knew it beforehand, from before there was time. He knew us. And for all of our faults and failures and frailties in the flesh, he chose us and paid so dearly to wash us clean because he wants to enjoy us forever. Paul speaks of this as the great mystery. It is a great mystery. I don't know a greater mystery here on earth than the mystery of two becoming one. It's miraculous when you witness what happens, and you can watch it. I've had lots of friends to get married and have good godly marriages and to watch them and to see. It is a miracle, but that's a tiny miracle. That's a tiny miracle. It's there to reflect something much greater. And consider before we get into this text, 
You know what the body does? The body holds up the head and serves the head. That's what a body does. That is what we do as the body. The whole founding of this church, how it began, Erlene's sitting right there and Big Daddy's sitting right there. If I be lifted up, I'll draw all men to me. That's what the body does. The body lifts the head up. And my body serves my head. When I'm hungry, it gives me food. When I'm thirsty, it gives me water. If I had hair, I'm sure it would comb it. That is the primary and most important function and identity of the church. Is that, and there is no greater, just to connect with what Brian was saying, as he's been delving into the medical sciences and nutrition and how to care for a body. Well, the most cardinal sign, you know, in the fleshly body, we have cardinal signs, they call them. You take your blood pressure, you take your pulse, you take your body temperature. People who study the sort of thing tell you that your gait or how you walk is a good indicator of your health. Some people consider that one of the cardinal signs of the body. The first and foremost is what Jesus actually said to the Ephesian church in Revelation is loving the Lord. That's it. Love him. It's not more complicated than that. It's the deepest and most important work that we can do individually and collectively. It doesn't matter if you memorize the whole of Scripture, if you write a hundred books and go on lecture tours. It does not matter. As we see in 1 Corinthians 13, you know, it's just nothing if you don't have love. The bride is to love the husband. That's what we're here for. Let's start in verse 22. It says, Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. The husband is the head of the wife, just as Christ is the head of the church. You see he's drawing this parallel immediately. He's saying that that marriage relationship, it represents Christ in the church. That's what it is. He himself is the savior of the body, and don't we know it? So we were singing Amazing Grace today. That's when it started for me. As part of this body, I will never forget what it was to be hopeless and helpless and lost. It's so immediate and real to me. Every time I, I meet that touch point, something between love and immeasurable gratitude just pours out of me. I can't contain it. Because, you know, if I were in his boat, I don't know that I would have come for me. You know, if I'm honest, I measure my life and I see what I'm willing to give, even for those people who are most lovely, and you are those people who are seated here today. I don't give like Jesus gave, but he gave for me. It's everything to me. It's how my life began. It's all of my joy. It's all of my hope, my whole future is bound up in it. He saved me as part of his body. Verse 24, but as the church is subject to Christ, also the wives ought to be to the husbands in everything. Well, that's how we do to Christ, isn't it? That's a big word, isn't it? Everything. That means, you know what I told him? I'll just put it in terms that this is how I think, so it may or may not resonate with you. 
But I remember immediately I was plunged into trials. Immediate, well, okay, six months down the road, there was a honeymoon period after I was saved. After that, it was the hammer and the anvil. I was getting it from both sides, it seemed like. And I was just crying out to the Lord because it seemed like a new thing, but I was a baby Christian and I wasn't expecting what Jesus said would happen. I didn't know. But I remember saying to him, I already told you yes. I already said yes. I said, no matter what you ask of me, the answer is yes. I don't care what it is. If I have something you want, you have it. If something would please you, I will do it. And it doesn't matter what that extracts from me. How could I even look at that after looking at what loving me extracted from you? How could I ever? I'm not doing that calculus. So we submit to him in everything. And sometimes submission seems cruelly difficult. It extracts, it takes from us. Sometimes it puts us through sleepless nights, through agony, through distress, discomfort, humiliation, lack, want. None of us have ever been beaten and dragged before courts or run through with reinforcement bar, but the likelihood is that we will. And even if we don't, we will face things like that until we breathe our last breath. It will happen. But he is worthy of it all. It's not so difficult to submit to him in hard things, hard things, things you set your heart on. Maybe you have to let that go. I've been there. Things that maybe frighten you into virtual paralysis, maybe you have to enter into them and stay, stick it, stay in it. That's difficult, seems impossible, but it's not because the Holy Spirit gives us the power to do what we need to do. And secondly, we just look at Jesus, don't we? All right, when we look at him, he's worth it. That's what I always think. Lord, you're so infinitely worth it. And I mean, you will get tested if you haven't already. I suspect you have. But if you haven't, you will get to the moments where there's no sense of comfort, where you go from sort of a carefree mindset that's so easy to fall into in this country. We're so blessed. We have so much. We don't know what lacking is. The poor people in this country are kings by comparison to how people live in most of the world. It's very rare, both in time and space. It's rare in the timeline of history. It's also rare around the globe. This is a very unique thing. So we don't really know, but you'll get to the place where you're counting the seconds and you're begging God to give you strength to see it through. And the only thing that I know of that's powerful enough to see you through that moment steadfast is the thing that held Jesus on the cross. He's got to be the joy that's set before us. And it's an ironic thing, really, when I, and I do periodically ask myself the question, you know, for all of the achievement, you know how I am. Look, I'm an orderly person. I like my routine. I have certain goals. I have a hierarchy of them. I don't anymore have it in a pyramid color-coded on graph paper, but I have done it. 
So there are things I want to do. I want to know the scripture better. I want to be more faithful in prayer. I don't ever want to see one of you going through something and think to myself, if I had been faithful to pray, maybe they wouldn't be going through that. Or maybe I could give some comfort, but you know what? My comfort was more important to me, so I don't have it to give today. I don't want to feel the bite of that. But for all of those things, the question that comes back home to me is, David, do you love the Lord today more than you loved him when he first found you? That's a harder question, isn't it? It's not quantifiable, really. That's a thing that's only inside of your heart. I mean, the, the follow-on questions for me is, well, do you still get filled with, I'm going to call it butterflies, I don't know, when, when you come into his presence, do you seek that out? Is he the last thing on your mind when you lay your head down on your pillow at night and the first thing? on your lips when you wake up from bed in the morning? Do you seek him out? Do you make excuses to be alone with him? Do you want to hear his heart and thoughts and opinions on things more than anything else? Well, if I can answer that yes, that means that I'm loving him. I haven't lost my first love. And that's, see, I found this to be true. And I know we're going to have to finish this and move on because guess what? There are three other things to cover. But you can be steady in a lot of output. I found that out. When I was called into ministry, I was faithful in that. But you can hide from God reading the Bible. You can just learn things. Your heart could be a million miles away. You don't have to be intimate with the Lord, holding his hand, letting him hold you up close. You don't have to be like that. You can busy yourself well, kind of like Martha, Martha, right? It can be all about, you know, plates and food and cars and sandwiches, John boy. You know, in the middle of those things that would, to all outward appearances, look as if you're solid. Boy, look at all the things you're doing. But Matthew 7 just rings in my head, you know. Didn't I do all of these things? Well, you could be real busy. It's not the level of your production. That's not to say it doesn't have value. That's literally one of the things that I want to look at. We've got work to do, but it doesn't matter a whit if your heart isn't for him, just for him. So he gave himself up for her, verse 26, so that he might sanctify her. That's holy, so powerful, made us holy. Why? Because he cleansed us by the washing of the water with the word. So, I mean, how clean are you? We need to settle that. One of two things is true. Either that accusation that you're letting in, that Satan is whispering in your consciousness, either that's true, and you're damned, you're condemned, and you may as well give up and run out. Or... God's word is true, and Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient, and you are clean without spot or wrinkle or blemish or any such thing. And we have to settle that in our hearts because you can die vacillating between those two things, inert. Because what kind of work can you get done through that vessel that's like that? I like what Witt said, so I'll repeat it, you know. Sometimes we don't feel these things to be true. That's all right. That's human. Your feelings will go up and down. Just preach the word to your heart. 
until you believe it. Because God is true, and all of those spirits are liars. So we're sanctified and we're washed with the water of the word. Why? Verse 27. So he might present to himself the church in all of her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she would be holy and blameless. So if we're what we're saying that we are, if Paul is right, if God was right to write it through him, if these words are the truth, we are holy and we belong to Jesus. And that will settle a lot of things. So the instruction is, oh, I don't want to skip this word. I feel like every time I get excited about something the Lord is saying that I know the minutes are ticking away. I know they are blameless. Think about that. Blameless. Blameless. That's 100%. I don't know how to convey it. I think that we don't get it. I know I don't. I just keep working on it. That's all. Because somewhere, somehow, we live in the disconnect between, okay, this thing, the Bible is true, what it says is true, and yet we will operate on a bad program as if it were not true. Isn't that right? I'll give you an example. God's in charge. He knows everything. He loves us. He's got the future promised. It's set. So, we have everything we need, right? But how often does our mental program say, well, you're not going to have enough. You're, you're going to be without. Brian was talking about that earlier. I know that feeling very well. Somehow we can do that. I don't really understand how it works. I just think I treat it like shampoo. And don't laugh because there was a time when I did use shampoo. Lather, rinse, and repeat. I still remember the first time I was ever called to preach. I preached on Philippians 4 because that word was so close to my heart. You know, that it, don't be anxious about anything, but in all things, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, you make your request known to God. And the peace of God that passes understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And, see, when I have an anxious thought, I just do that. And if I have another one, I just do that again. And if I have another one, I just do that again. How many times do you think I've run that cycle? Millions? Billions, I don't know, but it works, and I think it's like that. We do need to rehearse this often. We are blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. Stop there and think about that. Again, I just want to address bad programming. And don't make a mistake, I'm talking about me. You know, I'm not pointing my finger at you. We're all guilty of this. How many times have you felt in your spirit or had a, a wicked, evil spirit whisper in your heart that God is mad at you, that he's disapproving, that he's waiting to just crush you, that he can't wait to, to drop you, that you're dead weight? But what is, what is real, though? What's true? He loves you and he cherishes you, that he'd give everything for you. He loves and cherishes us. A beautiful song Elizabeth was singing. That's the truth. I think that's one of the ways we speak to ourselves and to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. <laughs> when Big Daddy started reading from Psalms chapter 1, I think he did it. I could be wrong, but it's all right. Blessed and happy is the man. Who was it? Did you do it? 
Brian did it? Okay. I had the song from Worldwide in my head. Did you? Yep. I can't hear it without that song. So many of those psalms are stuck in my head because of that. But there's such truth. Sometimes I think I'm thankful for being able to read the Bible, and I do like studying things, but there's something much more powerful about a song. There just is. There's something powerful about, and if we could lay hold of the things that are said, I remember it was said of, uh, I'm going to forget his name, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, John. No, that's not it. No, John Edwards, he was uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God. I want to say Bunyan, but that's wrong. Anyway, this man was a slave ship captain. He was, what is it? Newton is correct. Thank you. Yes, John Newton. He had been a despicable man by his own admission, and he was roundly and soundly hated and feared by all who were around him, and his trade was trafficking in humans. That's who he was. But he wrote Amazing Grace. And see, he knew what he was saying, didn't he? When he said Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That sound was the gospel coming down to him that saved a wretch like me. So he was asked later when he had become a minister, he was a preacher of the gospel. And they said, you know, you've become so learned, you're so well respected. What is the deepest theology that you know? And he said, Jesus loves me, this I know. We sing that even as we're little children. But don't we spend our lifetime coming to understand what that means? You'll plumb the depths of that for all eternity, and we're never going to get to the bottom. Hallelujah. He nourishes and he cherishes us. Verse 30, because we're members of his body. Verse 31 says, it's for this reason that a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. And the mystery is great, verse 32. But I'm speaking with reference to Christ and the church. So if you can understand what marriage is, if you can think about how that works, how intimate, how much you are one, how when it's working, and you can see it, say, I don't know it from the inside, I only know it from the outside. The only real marriage experience I have is my betrothal with Jesus. But I feel like I've been a student and an observer. When I watch good marriages, what it looks like is each one is serving the other one. That's how it works. And if you can understand how that works, you can start to understand how it is as a body, what we do for Jesus. I bet we don't think about that so much, but we should. When we come here today, how are we different as a body than the woman that wept at Jesus' feet? Didn't we come here to show him our love? Didn't we open our hearts and lay them bare in song today? Pour our souls out? Did we cry tears? If y'all didn't, I cried enough for all of us. I may not be finished. Y'all wonder why I drink so much water. If I didn't, I'd be dehydrated. 
Hallelujah. That is a great mystery. But that's the primary function of the church. It's what we're for. When all of the other functions are done away, this will remain. The union is eternal. And we will enjoy that love forever. Let's turn to John chapter 4. Big Daddy mentioned this. I wish I could go through the whole thing. If you've watched The Chosen, then this moment is very real. Uh, I think that's one of the blessings of that show, at least it has been for me, is that I try to wrap my imagination around these events. You know, they're real things. These are real people. We think of them like they're stories, but it's real. Man, do I ever feel, I feel like they're all me. I feel like, I was the woman caught in adultery because I remember my promiscuous lifestyle. I feel like I was caught in the middle of my sin and hurled down in front of Jesus. And I felt like that woman, like he's about to cast me out. I would have, it would have been right, but he didn't. I was the one that he said, well, where are your accusers? Well, neither do I. But go and, and don't do that anymore, you know. I was this woman at the well. My life was a mess. It was a wreck, hopeless and helpless. But he was so kind to me. And that's the context of what he's saying here in John chapter 4. We'll look at verse 21. We're just going to break into that narrative for the sake of time. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, an hour is coming when neither in this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you don't know. We worship what we know. Salvation is from the Jews. What does he mean? Salvation. Jesus literally means salvation. It came through the Jews. That's the whole point of the temporary covenant that was added because of transgressions. The permanent covenant, which always was, which was given to Abraham, the father of the whole faithful. Israel wouldn't enter into it. They shied away at the mountain. They rejected God at that point. So the temporary covenant was put in place to hold them together until the promised seed could come. That's Jesus. Salvation, Jesus, came from the Jews, came right through that line. But an hour is coming, verse 23, and now is. So from that moment forth, if it was now then, it's now now, if you follow what I'm saying. When the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For such people, the Father seeks to be his worshipers. So the first thing to note there is that it's like you can get either one anywhere in the world. A lot of people worship in spirit. That's with your heart. Okay? With spirit. When we say that, like the spirit that's in man, who can reveal the thoughts of a man except for the spirit which is in the man? It's your heart. That's what we're talking about. Something very deep. It's deeper than... Your thoughts, by comparison, are superficial. Your thoughts come out of it. It's what Brian was saying. I mean, I think he was really referring to the Scripture, where if you only deal with your mouth and your tongue, you're not going to solve your trash-talking problem. That's from the heart, because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's the same. It's from this reservoir of our hearts. So, but you do find people everywhere that I think are throwing their hearts into it. But you will find that mostly, wherever you find that, it's not according to knowledge, you know? And it matters, doesn't it? Doesn't it matter? It matters to Jesus. 
I cannot imagine trying to honor some lofty Jewish person. I like Viktor Frankl. Let's pick on him. Viktor Frankl survived the Holocaust and Auschwitz and left us with that wonderful book, Man's Search for Meaning. Imagine that with my heart, I loved him. With my heart, I was thankful and admired him for what he had gone through and the way that he triumphed over that tragedy. And so in my love for him, I'm going to worship him. Worship is wrapped up in our word worth. It means to value, to esteem, okay? It's just like praise. Praise and worship, literally the same thing, to value, right? If you want to know how, what's the value of a house, have it what? Appraised, and that'll tell you what it's worth. Worship is about worth. Praise is about value. That's what it's about. I'm going to honor Viktor Frankl because I love him from my heart, and I want to. So I pick a date. I pick Hitler's birthday, and I tell everybody we're going to have a costume party for Viktor Frankl, survival of, survivor of Auschwitz. Everybody dress like Hitler. Let's put on our Nazi uniforms and get the little mustaches, and we'll all salute him, Sig Heil. Now, that is from the heart. My intentions are good. Do you think that's going to please Viktor Frankl, or do you think he will find that offensive? Amen. Thus is all of the worship that's done from a heart desire to love the Lord through pagan rituals. And that's majority of what you find, whether it's Christmas or Easter or whatever pagan thing, and it is a stench in the nostrils of God. It just is. Or alternatively, you can find people that will do it in truth, which was my background, trying to be accurate, dotting the I's, crossing the T's, but minus the spirit. The heart wasn't there. It could be said of them, yeah, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. And that also doesn't honor the Lord. Do you think Jesus is happy with that? Like you just have this contract to be married and you're strangers in the same house? You don't give your heart to him? That's literally what he said to me. I've got everything but your heart, son. That was his call to me. And I, don't, I did not really begin, well, let's just say, what I had prior to that time pales by comparison to what I have now. And I'm sure that I will grow in that. But you can find a lot of people that are <laughs> the frozen chosen, right, that are careful about those instructions, but where's their heart? Either one is bankrupt. It's like describing a ditch on either side of the road. The road's in the middle, in spirit and in truth, both things. And that's one of the functions of the church, and it is a rare jewel to the Lord. It's so rare. Who will both love him and be faithful to him, you see? But isn't that what you would want in your bride? And I think it's interesting to find the Father seeks such to be his worshipers, always looking. Doesn't Jesus leave the 90 and 9 and go after? Doesn't he send us forth, which is something that we will get to in order to seek and save that which is lost? It's something that he wants. That's what I want to point out there. He's looking for that, but it is exceedingly rare. Consider a place like Jerusalem in Jesus' day. You have the Pharisees. Now, they had the truth. They had a lot of it. 
you know? That's one of the things that Paul was saying. What's the advantage of being a Jew? Well, much in every way. For one thing, they're entrusted with the sacred oracles. They have literally the words of God and this history of how God walked with those people. What a treasure. And yet, did he find the Pharisees worshiping in spirit and in truth when Jesus showed up? No. No, in fact... He told them that they were a brood of vipers, that they were sons of the devil, that their houses left desolate, and he pronounced woes on them because their heart didn't love the Lord. Their heart was full of murder and envy. You know. And then you end up with, who knows this woman? I don't know her life. I'm sure it was broken. There's no question about that. When he says, yeah, you've had five husbands and you didn't bother to marry the guy you're shacked up with now, well, why might your life look like that? I don't know. Was she abused and had a poor sense of self-esteem, and so she looked for the love she never got from her physical father in this series of men, and yet she was so badly damaged that she didn't know how to love them, and she always picked the kind of guy that would stomp on her? Probably. If not that, something like that. You know, people can get to these places. It's not like you plan to be there. And yet here she is. So she had a heart. I know she did. That's why Jesus made that appointment. He went out of his way to show up there. She revealed her heart because just like the thief on the cross, you know, he was mocking Jesus until he got convicted by the Holy Spirit. And then he confessed with his lips, didn't he? We deserve this. But he doesn't. And that's her, isn't it? You know, she's just like, I want to worship. When, when the Messiah comes, she wants to worship. And now she's asking a question about worship. And he says the most powerful thing. This is the moment, and I am he. So powerful. And here we are. That's who we are. We're here worshiping in spirit and in truth, best we can. And we have each other as a constant guide and the word to help us gauge where we are like that. You know, I can't do it on my own. I can't. I don't have that ability. I'm blind to the things I can't see, you know. But because I have this body, you are a check on me. The messages that God inspires through the different ones of you or the moments when, like Brian was mentioning, maybe you put a, a seed, you know, it helps me. And so we keep each other in spirit and in truth. And when we see either one waning, well, sometimes, hopefully, mostly we pull. Sometimes you might have to push. But praise the Lord. That is a function. We love the Lord first. He's our bridegroom. We are his bride. And because of how lovely he is, it's inexhaustible. When you place your mind there and you think about how good he is to you, how deep his love. I love that scripture that was referred to today that you may know the length and depth and breadth of the love of God for you. You'll never get finished with that. It's as deep as there is. When you know who that is, and then you think, well, he's chosen me. Worship follows. And you want to do both things. Worship from your heart, not without feeling, 
And when I used to do theater, I loved theater. I did it all the way through high school. Sometimes the director would tell you, yeah, you got the lines right. Yes, you got the blocking right. You were in the right spot when you said it. But let's do it one more time with feeling. You know, this isn't a recital. Remember this moment that you're in. So we're to worship him in spirit and in truth. Now go to Matthew 28. And those things are first. That's first. Because all of going and making disciples, which is what we're going to look at, it doesn't matter if that's not taken care of. You'll end up being like the Pharisees. What Jesus said is, you go halfway around the world to recruit one proselyte and make him twice the son of hell that you are. That's what'll happen if it's empty, if it's dry. But worshiping will prime that pump. And you know what? <clears throat> if it doesn't, do it again. <clears throat> and if it doesn't, do it again. And then if it doesn't, do it again. And do it till it does. There are dry times I can testify as pastor was saying, you know, from the time that I came into the things of the Spirit, that's been 14 years ago now. I've been on such highs. I remember them all. I treasure them. They feel, they're places that I visit, let's say, frequently, that I go to. But I sometimes think that the Lord intentionally puts us through dry times to get us ready for the outpouring. I'd, I've never really seen it operate differently, if I'm being honest. It always seems like, in fact, uh, well, he's not in here, but Blake would testify, I say it with fair regularity, that whenever I see a shaking, it does hurt my heart. I don't like seeing that. I don't like seeing savage wolves picking around the edges. I don't like it. I don't like seeing people stagger and stumble I don't like it. It both frightens me and it makes me angry. But I will say this. When God subjects his church to shaking, to difficulty, to pressure, even grinding trials, those kinds of things, I almost always say, well, he's got something good. It always works that way. You're never passing through the desert, but the promised land is on the other side. That's how the Lord is. Consider all of the best triumphs. Just run your mind through Scripture and think the period of more than a decade for David where he is essentially like Osama bin Laden being chased by the forces of a powerful army hiding in caves. That's David's life. Life on the line every day. That is followed by the triumph of being the king of Israel and all of that glory. That was a necessary part of that process. Or you can think of Daniel, or you can think of Joseph, or you can think of Esther. You can think of anybody that just think of them all. Just run it through your mind and see if that's not true. That's always the way. You know, if God wants to use a person mightily, he will hurt them deeply. He will press them hard. And the biggest and greatest example of that is Jesus, because that very cross that we were looking at today, that was his gateway to triumph, the greatest triumph that has ever been. We'll always sing about it, always, forever. 
the greatest, looks like defeat, publicly humiliated, shamed, tortured, and in the middle of that suffering, literally adding insult to injury, those he came to save are hurling insults at him. But you know, that is where life came from for us. That resurrection from the dead, that's where everything starts for us, and without it, it doesn't exist. So that is just very true. And you can always think of that when there are desperate, difficult trials, very dark moments. Just know the triumph is on the other side. So here in Matthew 28... Here's the third thing that the church is for, the purpose of the church. Verse 18, Jesus came up and he spoke to them. Just, just know, I'll just reiterate this in terms of worshiping in spirit and truth. Jesus told them, go meet me there. What if they didn't show up? Right. It's still important to show up when Jesus says to come, to be where he is, to follow him. So Jesus came up and he spoke to them and he said, look, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. That's everything everything. Therefore, go. I will tell you that when I was called into the ministry, I did not have any confidence. I literally fought it. I went to so many different people, and the word I was looking for is, no, you don't have to do that. I mean, after all, you've led such a terrible life, you know. How could you ever do that? Nah, just uh, go get a job. Pay your tithe to the church. Be faithful, you know. That's never what the Lord said to me. Ray Wooten, you know him. He really blessed me in that, and, you know, he basically said, well, you know, God talks through donkeys. I guess you're probably about as good as that. <laughs> and that is the truth. But I would look at the task. The task is share Jesus unvarnished with people. Be that. Be that loving. Be that sacrificial. Be that honest. Be that steadfast. Be that faithful. Now, anybody who has any sense of mathematics and precision and accuracy will look at themselves and their lives and then look at Jesus and his life and realize there's a difference. There's a gap between those two things. It is a great gaping chasm. So how can you do that? Well, you can't, not on your authority. But this is what Jesus is saying. Those, do you think those disciples didn't know? They knew. But he's saying, listen, because now I have been endued with all of this power, I'm giving it to you, and I'm telling you, I am going with you. In fact, that's one of the things he literally says. So it's because of that that we can go into all the world because he has that kind of authority. What does that mean for us? Well, you're going to come across different spirits. If you're faithful to do this, look, we do it now as this is going to be broadcast, it's going to be recorded, people can watch it online, etc. This is God's word going forward. That's what it is. We do it individually when we go out in our individual lives and we encounter people in different situations. That is us going out into the part of the world that the Lord has placed us in. That's exactly what happened with the disciples. Some of them were there ministering in Jerusalem. Some of them were in India. Some of them went to England and took that word. But you're going to encounter every kind of spirit that there is out there. And you in the flesh don't have any power to fight it. You know, a strong spirit of delusion or, well, all of the wicked spirits that you see Jesus confronting when he goes out, we have. So how can you do that? Well, you can do it because he is in you. 
He's the one that does it. I heard it today. He said, we can't do much without Jesus. Actually, we can't do anything. I mean, that's the whole thing, right? Nothing. It's a big pile of nothing. How much can you do on your own in your flesh, Dave? Put both of your IQ points together and rub them real hard and tell me how much you can do without me. Answer, zip, zilch, nada, nothing. It's all him. It's all him. But because he is in us, there's nothing that can stand against us. Hallelujah. And so he says, verse 19, you go, therefore, and make disciples of the nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now, that's twofold. That's two things. When you're doing this, you are, A, preaching the gospel, which you do with your life. You do that as a light. You do that how you walk with people. They're going to hear it. I You know that I was a teacher before I came here. I taught in a little Christian school. Half of our students were well-adjusted from good, steady homes. Half of them were kids that had fallen through the cracks, been in the foster care system, hard lives, very painful circumstances. I'm sure I don't know the half of it, but I know some. And I would just pray over those kids because what in the world can you do for a kid that's in that kind of pain? See, my mind would flash back to being in similar. I wasn't in their same circumstance, but I was in mine. I remember what that's like. You can't say words to people like that. You know, it's not one of those things where you can just, I don't know the right word. You can't just be a cheerleader, man. It's got to be deeper than that. You know what? They have to see and feel in you that you can feel the pain that they're in. You have to be that real, and you have to be that vulnerable. What that means is you got to be Jesus. Jesus has to show up through you, and when he does that, it's just like the woman at the well. Well, that's how it is with us, too. Long before we open our mouths, people are reading our witness. And they know. I've seen it a million times. I just marvel with the Lord. I don't know how many times I've gone home from, I guess they're not chance encounters. I mean, that's not what they are. They're appointments that he made. I just didn't know about them. He's calling the shots. And I'll just say, Lord, I don't understand. Why did that person open up? And the only answer is that Jesus was present. That's all. If people can read Jesus on you, then you have an end. Even against the shut doors, again, I'll direct you to the thief on the cross. How depraved a person do you have to be to end up being crucified in Rome? They did not do that to run-of-the-mill criminals. You had to be pretty bad. And then there you are in contempt of the one who loves you and made you, and so you're mocking him. But they saw what Jesus was like in the midst of his suffering. And it pierced him. It pierced him. He repented. He confessed. He just agreed together with God. I deserve this. You're right. I am a sinner. But don't forget me. Remember me. That's the same as save me. And that is all that is required. So you have to do that part first. Then the baptism, that's a commitment that they make. And then this part is also important. Verse 20, teach them to observe all that I commanded you. Now, look, that's not complicated, but it is not the norm. The commandments are not emphasized. 
No, we can't save ourselves. You don't think, I mean, if anybody understands how salvation works and grace, don't you think Jesus probably has a good handle on it? I mean, he was that grace after all. Not by works. We didn't do the works he did. And yet he's saying you teach them to keep my commandments. That means value them, treasure them, observe them, keep them as a focal point. Train your eyes on them. Walk this way. He could have just said teach them to keep me. Because ultimately, that's what it means. But most people don't teach that. Most people will just say, oh, that's legalism. And what I like to say is, if that's what you think, your argument is not with me, it's with the Lord. I mean, you can talk to him because he's both kind and severe. His grace is completely free. He will give it to you when you're lost and trapped in your sins, when you're unlovely. But then he will also say, just like he told the woman that was caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Walk this way. So that's what we teach. And we're never going to let that go for that reason. And then he says, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, which is our only confidence that we can see this through. I don't know how many times that it looked like there was no way through. I know, again, uh, when I was in Worldwide, I thought that was the true church, and that they had the true doctrine. And the scariest thing I could think of was to be disfellowshipped from that group. Like, if I'm without them, then all is lost. And then they apostatized and splintered. They went to the four winds. And I was shaken hard. I mean, it was two years of me trying to figure out, I don't even know what do I believe in anymore. How much, how much is true? I had thought because I read booklets and then I would look at the Bible and the quotation in the booklet matched the quotation in the Bible. I'd be like, yep, well, I've proven that and then that. And I had stacks of the plain truth and the good news and all the booklets, man. So I knew a lot of stuff. But as it turns out, you know, um, there was a lot more to the Lord than just that. Some of it was right and good, but I needed that shaking. If I hadn't had that, I wouldn't have this. And whatever shaking is present right now, it's the same. Whatever follows is greater. And I praise him for that. But he says, I'm with you even to the end of the age. It means I'll see you to the finish line, son. Now I'm going to do it. You don't see it any more than when they sent the disciples out without provisions. Not a staff, not extra clothes. And they went out. God provided for them. They encountered demons, demon-possessed people, sick, people that were would persecute them, and they triumphed. Why? How? Well, the Lord did that for them, and we're the same. And it's going to be that way, as long as we're faithful, until the end, until we breathe our last breath, and then we awaken in his likeness and glory, or until we're changed in a twinkling of an eye, which, P.S., we'll still breathe our last breath, because we won't need any breathing after that. Hallelujah. And finally, let's go to John 13. While we're going there, I'll just go back. The purpose of the church, that's the title of this message. The very first purpose of the church is that we are the bride. We are to love and submit to our groom. That's what we are. Next, we worship in spirit and truth, individually and corporately. That means we value Jesus and the Father. 
Then we go into all the world like Matthew 28. We represent Jesus. We just bring Jesus to the world, both in who we are and what we say. That's what it is. It's not fancier than that. You know, it's not eloquence of speech. That's another thing 1 Corinthians 13 makes very plain. You can have, you can speak with tongues of men and angels and not have love, and it's just noise. And then finally, here in John 13, this is something that, well, it hadn't let me go since Passover. That's the truth. We wash one another's feet. And we know this moment. You know, when Jesus said it was with great desire that he's desired to eat this Passover, he knows what's coming. He's been contemplating this moment in his life from time immemorial. He foresaw it, foreknew it, volunteered for it, and his whole physical life was pointed at this. And he knew this was the last moment. It's a precious moment. This was the moment where you're going to get a repeat. If you want to see a parallel, this is the moment at the mountain when he called Israel to himself. This is when he said, listen, prepare yourself for three days because I'm coming. And he was going to betroth himself, but they wouldn't. They jilted him. They left him at the altar. Only a very few were faithful amongst that bunch. So that moment was hanging in the air from that time when they went to that mountain until this moment. And when Jesus says with great desire, we don't have an English word that matches that. To be consumed or obsessed, to be in anguish, to be in agony, those are similar to the feeling he's trying to describe. You know what it's like if it's something that your heart has longed for and maybe you have worked for. If you're an athlete, you know, and you're going to the Olympics and you start when you are four years old and you get up when all the other kids are nestled in their warm beds and it's 4 a.m., the alarm's going off and you're drinking your stupid raw eggs and, and you're jumping rope and you're running miles and then you're pulling up on the rings or whatever your event is and you just repeat that every day. You don't take vacations, other kids do. You don't go to parties, you got to be at bed on time. You sacrifice and you work and you labor and you do that for year on year on year until you get to show up at the Olympic Games. Maybe you're 15, 16 years old at this point. And all of that hard work finally pays off and you stand on the podium and they put on you that gold medal. That's what Jesus is talking about with great desire. I've desired to eat this Passover with you. And so he's thought... What's the last thing that I can give them? What's the most important thing? What do you give to a bunch of people that you, as a love, have come and sacrificed everything for? What is your parting message to them? Boil it all down. Let's just distill it all down. You can leave one thing with them. What do you do? Well, he's thought about this. Don't think he didn't think about it. He's known about it his whole life. He's preparing for it. And so he shocks them all because he takes off his robe. Well, let's read it. Verse 5, he poured water into the basin. Well, let me, let me back up just a bit. Verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands. That's a repeat, by the way, of what we saw in Matthew 28. He has it all, all the authority, all the power. 
and that he had come forth from God and he was going back to God. He knew who he was, where he was coming from, and where he was going. He got up from supper and he laid aside his garments. Just that phrase. I think I could spend a year on that. What did he put aside? His comfort, his dignity, his grandeur, his glory, his honor, his righteousness, his holiness. What did he do? All treasures, all the power of the universe. I think of what it said there in Isaiah 6 where it's holy, holy, holy. The earth is full of his glory. Whether it's the aurora borealis or those multicolored bioluminescent fish in the depths of the sea, whether it's the sunrise in the mountains or the splendor that no one's going to see unless they go 12 miles under the ground in a cave and a light hits this place that's nothing but darkness. And because of the minerals and the stalactites and the stalagmites, it's like an electric rainbow. Those are just traces, just like vapor trails of his glory. Takes that and puts it aside. His body, his blood. He puts it all down. Even as an unbroken love, unbroken fellowship, unbroken honor and respect and admiration between him and the Father, he lays that down. And that's what he's taking off. And he just gird himself with a towel. And I know the disciples are looking at each other like, what is going on? Now remember, these are the ones that have been bickering almost incessantly about, well, who's greater? I'm greater. You know, hey, get mom to ask if we can be, let's, I'll be, I'll take the right or the left. I don't care. I'll take whichever one is left over, but you know, we can be, we can have a position of honor and glory. They were petty in their thinking. They weren't yet what they were going to be. Oh, look at the difference between those who are bickering over, well, I'm me first, but me first. In the midst of Jesus, who is you first? Who is more you first than Jesus? And they're all me, me, me. And so in this moment, he's going to demonstrate to them what greatness is. So he comes to Simon Peter and he said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? You know, everybody says that. John the Baptist said it to him. Look, I need to be baptized with you. I mean, by you, I can't. I'm not worthy to take your shoes off. But it had to be that way. It's basically what he told Peter. It's got to be this way. You've got to let me do it. I know it's uncomfortable. I know you don't like it. It is difficult, and I've probably shared this before, but I'll just repeat it. My uncle was like a father to me, and I worked for him for a time. He had a rubber, an industrial rubber and gasket business, a very long table in the back of a warehouse, and I did a bunch of jobs, you know. And so I was on a job filling an order to make O-rings, those little circular things that make things watertight with a lot of caps in that. And so you just have to measure them out. You cut it with a knife, and you use an industrial bonding agent and put them together, et cetera. So I was in the middle of a job. Now, he worked up front in the office, and he dressed nicely because he didn't know who was going to come by the office or if he'd have to go meet with people that, you know, expected you to dress in a certain way. 
So as he passed through, he just said, hey, I want you to make such and such hose for me. And I said, yes, sir, which is what you say. And uh, I went along my merry way. I just was making the O-rings because in my mind, I was like, okay, I will do that. But I will do it once I finish the thing I'm doing because if you know me, I have to really work at this. I'm a little OCD by my nature. It's very difficult for me to start B before I finished A. It almost sets a panic off in me. I don't know. It's just how I am. So that was what I was thinking in my mind. I'll finish this, then I'll do what he said. And he passed me by, and I didn't even hear him. I just happened to turn around, and I guess I heard the saw that you used to cut that hose because it had metal in it. You know, it kind of sounded like a buzz saw. And I looked over, and there he is in his nice white shirt cutting a hydraulic hose and doing the job that he asked me to do. And I was undone. I was just undone. I ran over. I started begging him to do it, let me do it, you know, but it was too late then. I know that's how they felt. That's the closest thing I can get, you know, because, well, it's humbling, isn't it? But it is necessary. So Jesus answered and he said, what I do, you don't realize now. You don't understand this. You're going to look pre-cross. You don't. You don't get foot washing until you see what that really looks like. It's a lot more than kneeling down and taking off your nice robe, right? Because who knows what, what sacrifice might have to be made in order to cleanse someone, to wash their feet. You don't know. You don't know. I don't know. I've asked the Lord many times, what is the purpose of suffering? I see it amongst my heroes. The people I love the most in the word are the people who suffered so much. Obviously, Jesus, but all of them, you know. And what little suffering has touched my life. And, you know, I've always said to the Lord, if you'd remove some of these obstacles and roadblocks, man, imagine what you could get done through me but you don't know. I don't know that, I don't know that a hero that didn't have moments like David would connect with me the same, see? I don't know that an apostle who didn't suffer the way Paul did, I don't know if he would have the impact on me. I don't think so. Sometimes I think that the suffering, and not the suffering of our own making, but the suffering that's ordained. Those are platforms, you know? They're platforms. When you think about when the Lord says, look, I put the lamp on the lampstand. I want the light up. I want to give light to the whole house. See, that's you and me. And we think elevation is... Well, you get a PhD in theology and you learn how to be eloquent in your oratory. That ain't elevation, man. That's not. No. I mean, being broken, having a contrite heart, having what some of the poets call soft eyes. You ever heard of that? Some people say kind eyes. I never met a person with eyes like that that hadn't been beaten all the hell and back. Well, you can't be like that, see? But how do people know that they can share their deepest hurt with you and that you'll be faithful to them, that you, they'll get a kind word instead of a harsh rebuke from you? How do they know? Well, they have to see that. But how are you going to be like that? You know, even Jesus learned obedience through the things that he suffered. 
So we wash each other's feet. I mean, some of it, frankly, is easy little things that we sacrifice. I mean, time on our knees for each other, say. That's easy enough, isn't it? I mean, if I'm on my knees, I'm on my knees in a comfortable bedroom, you know, with the temperature set where I want it. I'm not saying that I don't labor in prayer, but it's a small thing, you know. What if you have to be bedridden for a couple of years, hospitalized multiple times or go through surgery after surgery? Or what if you have to limp for the rest of your life or experience daily pain? What if you have to do that? And what if all of that is just so that you can be humble enough for Jesus to reach someone through, right? What if that's foot washing? And that's laying a few things down, isn't it? Well, wouldn't it be worth it? Yeah. I mean, what's, I'm, I think of Jim Elliott every time I broach this subject, you know, Elizabeth Elliott's husband. He was a minister there to the, Aka's not a name that they like, but it's the only one I can remember, to the Aka Indians. He wrote in his personal diary, that's how we know what he said. He said, that man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep in exchange for what he cannot lose. And we ain't keeping any of this stuff. None of this stuff's all temporary. But... Every member of the body of Christ, even if it's just a cup of cold water to someone, you know, I don't know that, uh, I don't know that I've forgotten a moment that Jesus has comforted my heart. I try not to. Those are all extremely valuable to me. So he told Peter that he didn't realize it, but he was gonna, and he would too, boy. Although through bitter tears, he would. So he didn't appreciate how strong Jesus was until he saw how weak he was, right? He had to see it. That ain't painful. You think it's tough to let Jesus watch your feet. This is the thing I'm struck by every time, and I know we need to close. Just like Isaiah 6, when you see the Lord, what happens? Aren't you immediately, the word, he says, I am undone. That's what you are. There's nobody that thinks a lot of themselves that's ever seen the Lord. Because once you see him, you know better. You know. You just know better. So after he saw Jesus up on that cross and he saw the depths that he would sink to, well, he understood. But he knew a little bit more about washing feet. He would do it. He would do it. The Lord was able to get him there. But that was a necessary step, you know. It's just an object lesson that Jesus has given to him. <laughs> and he said, you know, never show you wash my feet. You know, I can't, I'm not going to let that happen. And Jesus is like, well, if I don't, then you can't be part of me. And that's always the scariest thing in the whole Bible. You know, depart from me, I never knew you. You can't even enter in. It's got to happen. I'll let this happen. So you let it happen. And then what? Well, I mean, I don't want to get into all of the rest of that, but you know, then he says, look, you see what I've done. Now you go do it. It's what I'm like. You go be like that. And they weren't able to do it, not yet, except for the same thing that we saw in Matthew 28. You know, you got to have, Jesus can do it. Amen. Jesus can do it. Right? And so, he's living in us, then he can still do it. That's kind of what I'm getting at. He can still do it. 
So if we're asking what the church is, I mean, the very first thing that we are is we're the bride of Christ. It's the, man, I'm just to be transparent. That's something I think about from the beginning to the end of the day. I need it. I need it because some things are difficult, you know? And sometimes the pain or the stress or whatever, it seems so unending. And I'll tell you this, and I know you know it in your own hearts. When you know what forever is going to be like, you just can't wait. It's so hard, man. I mean, every minute takes an hour. You know, that's what it feels like. But it's necessary, you know. I'm sure that Jesus' 33 years were long when he was in the flesh. I guarantee you they were. He walked farther in his years than I have in mine, I'll tell you that. But I think on that. I think on that holy union. I think on our wedding day. I think on the swelling praise in courts of heaven. I think about crystal seas. I think about hosts without numbers, you know, many brothers and sisters in glory. Wave upon wave, as some have seen the vision of praise and worship. I think about an ecstasy that will never come to an end. I reflect on that often. You know, that's the joy that's set before me. We're his bride. He's that intimate with us. And knowing who he is, you're going to worship in spirit and truth. Both things will matter. He's worthy of our hearts. And he's worthy of trying to get it right. Meaning, look, do it his way. That's all. We know what this is like. If there's a difference between your way and his way, give him his way. You'll be glad that you did. It'll be your way. I think about that, too, with the promise. You know, if you delight yourself in the Lord, he'll give you the desires of your heart. And I used to think, well, that means he'll give you whatever you want. It's more like you'll want whatever he gives. More like that. And then once those things are true and operating in us individually and collectively as a body, then we're making disciples. Because all we're doing is lifting that up. Ultimately, isn't that right? Now that we're in love with Jesus and we're just resounding with his worship from our hearts all the way out to our fingertips and our lips and all of that, well, that'll make a disciple. That'll do it every time. Made a disciple out of me. And then we wash one another's feet in small things and great. You know, in private moments when there's not a soul around, in the labor that you do in prayer, you know, in the training maybe that you do. Because, again, you can't give somebody bread if you didn't make any bread. you got to have bread. So, I mean, do you have a word from the Lord to share with someone? We should all. Of course, if we're faithful, we do. Those are things. But there are bigger things than that. Things that you probably don't connect, but that are connected. You know, like I said, it may be suffering that you don't understand or pain. You know, the crucible through which you had to pass or maybe are currently passing through. That's vital. In fact, indispensable. Paul could not have done the work that he did without the thorn that he had in his flesh. He needed it. I don't know what we need. But I do know that I think of that scripture as we look for and hasten the day of Jesus coming. You know, I want to speed that up. So I praise the Lord for making us who we are and for us to have, I mean, what could be a better calling or a more powerful witness 
just can't get better than that. Hallelujah. Hallelujah.